you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 30. Um, but before, you, uh, before we begin, I, I wanted to start with this story. I've been reading a book by Bob Goff called Everybody Always, Becoming Love in a World Full of Setbacks and Difficult People. And he tells this story about a time that he was flying from Palm Springs to home. He's a pilot. And as he was nearing the airport at night, he put down the landing gear and only two green lights came up. The nose gear light didn't light up. So he called the tower to have them look to see if the nose gear actually did come down. It was too dark. They couldn't see. So he declared an emergency and he started circling uh, the, uh, the, the airport thinking about what was gonna happen. He was either gonna keep circling the airport and never come down until he crashed or he was gonna try and do it on the two green lights that he did have. And so finally, with fear and trepidation, he comes in waiting to hear the propeller hitting the ground or the bounce of the nose gear touching down. And he comes in, lands on the back the tires, and then waits for the two, one of the two things to happen. It bounces. And he says, praise God, and everything's good. Uh, it turns out that there was a light bulb that burned out, a five-cent light bulb. <laughs> Everything was good. Everything was in its place. All the green lights were really lit, but he didn't know that. And so uh, a lot of times we spend too much time worrying about those green lights being all lit. You know, in life it's like that too. Uh, we wait for more and more confirmation instead of just making a decision and moving forward with the green lights that we do have. Sometimes we, we get paralyzed by analyzing the situation when we should just trust in God. Our faith is that way. Our life and experiences are all the green lights that we need to, to stop circling the airport and come in for that landing. We need to realize that God is with us. He uses all of these circumstances that we go to to shape our hearts. He's not trying to mess around with our heads. He's shaping our hearts. He's making us more like him. He knows that those difficulties and hardships and ambiguities are what cause us to grow because we're reminded of our absolute dependence on him. Amen? And so... One of the things that I, I realize is that wise choices come from the, are the fruit of experience, and experience is the, is the product of poor choices. Got that? Wise choices are the fruit of experience, and experience is the product of poor choices. God has some lessons planned for Jacob from his time that he spent living with Laban. At Bethel, back in a couple of chapters before, he had a vision of God. God had given him a promise to, his, to uh, land, to have descendants, and to be blessed by God. And as Pastor Doug has shared, Doug, uh, Jacob had an encounter, an encounter with God, but he didn't yet personally know God. He knew about God, but he didn't know him as Lord and Savior, as we would say it. He, and, and so he made some poor choices. He had to go through some experiences that would help him to make those wise choices later on. And so that's what we're going to see in this part of, the, of Genesis. We're going to see some of the poor choices that he and Rachel and Leah did. He's been living there for 20 years. Seven years for the first wife, seven years for the second wife, and six years for his flocks and everything, his wages. He's been living there for 20 years. He's, he's had all of these experiences. He's waiting for the day that he will finally choose the God of Abraham, Isaac, as his own personal God. That's God's plan for Jacob, amen? And that's God's plan for us, too. He wants us to choose him. He wants us not to continue to make those poor choices, but he wants us to make some wise choices. And sometimes, though, just like Jacob, we have to go through those tough times. And so that's what we're going to be looking at as we start today in Genesis chapter 30. So if you open your book, uh, your Bible, well, let me open it. There it is. 
Okay. So last week we heard from Pastor Doug that, um, that God had already been faithful to give Leah those four children. He had already been faithful to give um, Judah from which Jesus is going to come. Judah was his ancestor, and Jesus is going to come out of that. Levi has already been born, and from Levi is going to come Moses and all the priesthood. All of that kind of stuff is done. All of those things. God has already blessed him abundantly. You know, I believe that God's best for Jacob was Leah, because that's where all of these blessings are coming from. Levi and Jacob, those things have come out of Leah already. But Jacob's choice instead was a beautiful but mean, deceitful liar and a robber, which you'll find out later, right? That's who Rachel was. She was beautiful, and he loved her, and he didn't love Leah, he, he slept with her and he had children with her, but he didn't love her like he did Rachel. And I'm sure that that, uh, that kind of created some problems in their marriage, which we're going to see. Rachel and Leah had grown up in Laban's household. Laban was a very grasping and deceitful man, much like Jacob was. And so Leah and Rachel probably learned a lot from their father. They learned how to be deceiving and manipulating. They learned about living from Laban, and they carried them in their own lives, some of his traits. And I think we've seen that over and over as we've gone through the book of Genesis, that um, our family of origin leaves scars in our lives that we need to live with. I don't know about you, but I know I have scars in my life because of my family, because of the, the, the experiences and the things that I've had to go through. And I think we all have too. And Rachel, Laban, and Jacob all had scars in their lives that they had to learn to live with. They had to learn to give over to God. You know, there's some really neat songs out there that, that on the radio that talk about scars. If you get a chance to listen to Christian music, listen to the ones about scars. Because that's how God makes us who we are. God allows those things in our lives so that we can become better, not bitter. And so how we react and act out of hurts and omissions happens. Selfishness and sibling rivalries are spilling over into their marital obligations at Leah and Rachel. The expectations of Jacob's dysfunctional family life. So let's just dive right in. Let's go to the book of uh, Genesis, verse 1, chapter 30. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister. And she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Wow. Rachel is unhappy, and she's jealous because of her sister's success. She's had to live through, I don't know, four or five years of Leah pushing out one child after another, after another, after another, you know, and she's got nothing. And so she's getting angry, and she's getting jealous, and she's leaning on those traits that her father taught her about how to be deceitful. And so he, she goes up to Jacob and says, give me children, and Jacob said, I've been doing that every night, you know? Because remember, that's what Doug said. He loved Rachel. He spent time with Rachel. He didn't spend time with Leah. He spent time with Rachel. And, and he says, hey, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing everything. God is the one that's, that's keeping your womb closed. It's not me. It's not me. And so um, Rachel is, is unhappy. If mama ain't happy, ain't no one happy. Right? <laughs> That's the way it is in a household, isn't it? And so this is what's happening in the family right now. Mama ain't happy. And ain't no one going to be happy. Jacob just wants peace. And he's ticked off at Rachel now. So there's, there's family problems that are creeping up in his marriage. Yes, he loves her. Yes, he's, she's a beautiful woman, but there's some problems there. 
Have anybody married? Okay, are there any problems that creep up every once in a while? They do. Things happen. And there's anger and there's yelling at each other. And that's what this is, this is saying here. This is what's happening in Jacob's, you know, perfect blessing from God's family. You know, it's not working out exactly the way he thought it was going to work out. And let's see what happens next. Let's go on in the chapter. Uh, so Rachel says, here, here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, that through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore, she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Wow. Rachel follows the advice of the culture. And she offers her maid Bilhah to Jacob. And Jacob, being a man, says, okay, I'll do it. You know, just like who else? Abraham, remember? That, that, that whole thing that, that, that we've been looking at all these months or weeks ago. They, they do the same thing. They fall into the same kinds of issues that his grandfather had. And yet they just go right on, you know. And so he does it. The error that Abraham commits comes back again. And Jacob's, you know, Rachel and Jacob um, make some poor choices. They make some poor choices again. And Rachel feels as if she has been vindicated and she has prevailed over her. I'm winning. That's what she says. I'm winning. I got two now. You may have four, but I got two. And, and, and so she says they're vindicated. And then she says it, she believes who gave it to her. God did. Do you think God did that? I don't think God did that. I mean, it, it, God allowed it, but I don't think God did that. And so I, I think one of the things that we see in, in Rachel and Leah and, and people who know about God but don't know God, they have some twisted theology. They, they see things a little bit differently than what the reality is of what God really is doing. You know, God is doing one thing in this situation. He's trying to move them more towards a relation of faith and trust in Him and in His promises. And they keep trying to do things their own way, right? That's what we've been seeing all of these months, all of these, all of these weeks, I'm sorry, since we began Genesis. It just seems like it's been a long time, that's all. So um, uh, people that, that have bad theology. And so she names the, the, them Dan and Naphtali because she feels like they were, oh, what was the two words? Vindicated and prevailed. That's, that's what Dan and Naphtali means. You know, so things are, are getting more, more problems, more problems. God is trying to teach them some lessons. They are thinking that God is doing something, but God is doing something else all throughout the rest of this. Let's go on to verse 9. When Leah saw that she had stopped bearing, she took her maid Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. <laughs> now Leah's getting into the same thing. <laughs> you know, the competition is getting hot. The sibling rivalry is coming back again. You know, I, I, I'm sure that when they were growing up, they had contests between the two of them. Who could do something? You know, if you've grown up with a brother or sister, you know what I'm saying. You know, Doug's told us some great stories about how he used to beat up on his brothers. And, but anyway, there's competition there's competition that happens. And so she says, uh, he, she gives her maid Zilpah. And Jacob, of course, says, okay, I'll do it. Leah's maid bore Zilpah, uh, Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. 
Leah's maid Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she called him, she named him Asher. And so now Leah believes the results were fortunate and happy, names them fortunate and happy. Those are the two names of the kids, right? Both of them are competing to achieve the promise of the descendants for Jacob. I'm sure Jacob has shared that dream that he had when he was in Bethel, and that Rachel and Leah were just trying to fulfill the dream for him, trying to do what God was going to do. But they were trying to compete with each other. They were trying to be the best, trying to have the most children. You know, Leah's winning now, really, because she's got six kids and, and uh, Rachel's only got the two, right? Just in case you're keeping track of how many kids they have. They're not fit, finished. They've got eight now instead of four kids that they had when, at the beginning of chapter 30. And, and so now they're going to continue the competition. Competition may be a good thing in some cases, but in a family, between the, the family members, competition doesn't always work out the way it should. We really should be there for each other. We really should be thinking about the needs of other people rather than the needs of ourselves. But Leah and Rachel haven't learned that lesson. Jacob hasn't learned that lesson. They're still out trying to get things on their own. They're trying to do it all by themselves. And that's what this whole picture of Leah and Rachel and Jacob is talking about. They're trying to do God's promise by their own instead of just waiting on him. Let's go ahead and continue. Uh, verse 14. Now in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter for you to take my husband and you would also take my, my son's mandrakes too? So Rachel said, therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came in from the field in the evening, then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in with me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. And afterward, she bore a daughter and named her Dina. The competition between Leah and Rachel has spread out to the kids. Reuben, right? The firstborn. Reuben, the heir apparent. Reuben, another mama's boy. Because what does he go out and do? He says, I'm going to go out and help mama. I'm going to go out and get some mandrakes. Because Reuben's brought up in that culture, and he knows it's a scientific fact that mandrakes will make you pregnant. Mandate, mandrakes are an aphrodisiac. It, there was an article in, in the magazine the other day, Reuben read it, and he said, I'm going to go out and find some mandrakes for my mom, and she's going to be able to have kids, and dad's going to love her. See, it's spilling down into the kids. The kids are taking up the fight between Rachel and Leah. And Reuben has gone out there and gotten the scientific method involved here. How many times do we do that in our lives? We get the scientific method involved. So that, that's what, they, the, what Reuben is trying to do. So Leah's got these mandrakes, and Rachel comes up and says, Give me. Give them to me. I'm the one that hasn't had any babies. You need to give them to me. I need them more than you. You've had kids already. You've had four and then two by our maids. 
So you don't need them, I need them. And probably true. She probably, you know, if it worked, and I'm not saying they worked, <laughs> but she probably needed them worse. Rachel sees this as an opportunity to get herself pregnant by scientific methods. Leah responds bitterly about how, Rachel, you've stolen my husband, and now you're going to steal my chance to have some more children? You're going to take that from me too? And so they go back and forth, and they argue, and they, they scheme, and they finally figure out, okay, because Rachel is Jacob's favorite, she strikes a bargain for the mandrakes. Rachel will allow Leah some intimate time with Jacob in exchange for the mandrakes. I, I, and I think what this says is that most nights, it's Rachel and Jacob. Most nights, that's who gets the attention. And that's what Pastor Doug was saying. Rachel is the one that's loved. Leah is left out. And so Leah thinks, okay, if I can't get him myself, then maybe I'll take this opportunity. She gives the mandrakes to Rachel and for a couple of nights that she can have with Jacob. And she makes the most of those. She pulls him in from the, the, uh, the yard when he comes in and says, come on, I hired you. Come on. So anyway, they, they go in, and guess what? Leah conceives three times, two more sons and a daughter. And now Leah gets into this bad theology kind of thing. She thinks God has, uh, was okay with her choice of giving her maid to Jacob. And I, that's not the case. God's not okay with that. God's not okay with giving somebody else that. God's not okay with free marriages. God's not okay with multiple partners and all that kind of stuff. God's not okay with that. And so for her to say God is just showing his approval by giving me this son, she's got a little thing wrong with her theology. That's not the God of the promise. That's not the God that wants to, to love her and to be with her. That's not the God. That, so she knows about him, but she doesn't know him. And so, um, yeah. She sees him as her reward and honor, and, or names them that, reward and honor, Issachar and Zebulon. And then Dina, the third child, uh, is, of course, a girl. <sighs> you know, in that culture, the, the girls were, were thought of as a drain, Guys, the, the sons were a big thing, but girls were usually thought of as, oh, okay, there's another one. I've got to get her married. Got to get a good price for her. All the kinds of stuff that Laban had to go through to try and get, uh, get Leah and Rachel married off. And so uh, we're going to talk more about Dina in chapter, well, Doug will talk more about Dina uh, in chapter 34. So hold on. You'll find out about that later. Okay, so all of this poor choices are continuing to go on in the area of ch uh, raising children, of having children. That's part of God's blessing. He wants to bless Jacob and Leah and Rachel. He wants to give them that, but he wants them to trust him. And they're not learning the lesson very well. They're not, they're not looking out for each other. They're still just looking out for themselves. Then in verse 22, God remembered Rachel and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph saying, may the Lord give me another son. You know, God finally opens up Rachel's womb and gives her the son Joseph. And you know, Joseph is pretty important to the history of the Israelite people, right? Because the, nothing would happen in Egypt without Joseph. We'll find out more about that when we get there. But, but Joseph is a critical part of God's plan. And so God, God blessed Rachel with Joseph. God gave her that child of promise. God did it. It wasn't because of the mandrakes, okay? She had them, and she might have thought that was why it happened, but it wasn't that. 
It's always God, amen? It's always God. No matter what we're planning and we're trying to do to make God do what we want him to do, it's always God. It's always God. But there's something else I see about Rachel there. She named him Joseph, and that that name Joseph says, give me another son. She wasn't satisfied. It wasn't enough. She wanted more. You know, she wasn't happy just to have that one son and the, and the two by her maid. It, even in naming him, he, she was showing that she wanted more. She wanted everything. She wanted more. And so she has not learned the lesson about looking out for one another, about being a family, about having uh, harmony in the family, of looking out for the good of the other family members instead of yourself. They kept going, wanting their own way all the way through. And you know what I'd say, there, there are three things that I'd like to say to Leah, Rachel, and Jacob at the end of this section. Leah, you asked for trouble by going along with your father's scheme to marry Jacob. You can't earn a person's love. God is on your side. No matter how Jacob feels about you, God still loves you. No no man is worth fighting over. Your bitterness towards your sister is only hurting you. Go to Rachel and work things out. How much difference could there have been if she had made that choice? If she had learned the lesson that God was trying to teach in the midst of this, of letting go and letting God have charge of things, of thinking more about Rachel than about herself. And Rachel, it's not your fault you can't have children. It doesn't make you any less of a person. You should be glad that your husband loves you Having babies is nothing to compete over. Your jealousy towards your sister is only hurting you. Go to Leah and work it out. Wouldn't that have been what God wanted in the situation? That they would work together? That they would look out for each other? They were sisters, right? They were sisters. They should have been looking out for each other. And Jacob... Love both your wives. Cherish them equally and don't play favorites like your parents did to you and Esau. God was trying to teach them a lesson about the damage favoritism can play in a family. He was also warning them about the dangers of unbridled competition between sisters that spills out into broken relationships between those sisters who should be each other's best friends. You know, but the miracle of all this is that in spite of all their poor choices, God worked all things together for good. 11 of the 12 children have been born. God has already almost finished the blessings, the descendants part of his uh, promise that he gave Jacob at Bethel. There's only one more child left to be born, Benjamin. We'll see that later. But God has already finished almost all of those things, and he's working it all out for our good. Romans 8.28 says that, doesn't it? That God works all things together for our good to those that are called according to his purpose. Jacob was called according to God's purpose. Leah and Rachel were called according to God's purpose. They had a purpose to bring to fulfillment God's promise in the land of Israel. And so they, God was doing it. God did it. Amen? So that's, that's their family life. And now we're going to turn to the business side of things. We're going to look at the, the, the relationship between Jacob and uh, Laban and how they work out their wages, how they work out that, that time where, you know, La- he's been working for Laban for 20 years. You know, what's he going to get paid? That's a big issue. What are you going to get paid? And so Jacob goes to um, Laban. Oh, okay, let's start in verse 25. One more thing I wanted to say before I go to that. Now it came about that when Rachel had born Joseph, 
that Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you and let me depart. For you yourself know my service, which I have rendered to you. You know, I find it really interesting that they've been there for 20 years. He's had um, 10 sons and then he finally has Joseph from Rachel, and then he says, let's go, we're done. I mean, that shows his favoritism again, doesn't it? All of these other children have been born. All of these descendants have been uh, given to him by God through Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah, but it isn't until Rachel has that one son, his favorite son, right, the coat of many colors, that's the one he's making the coat for later on. Joseph. Now Joseph comes along and it said, it came about when Rachel had born Joseph. All of a sudden, he's ready to go. He's thinking, okay, everything's been done. I just need to get my wages and I'm on my way. He's ready to go. Uh, maybe jumping the gun a little bit, but anyway, he, he's, he's still playing favorites. He's still wanting to, uh, you know, uh, have Rachel as, as the one. So anyway, I thought that was interesting. Moving on. So what does Laban say? 27. Laban said to him, if now it pleases you, stay with me. I have divined that the Lord has blessed me on your account. He continued, name me your wages and I will give it. You know, I think Laban was a little slow on the uptake. He says, you know, he, he's seen what's happened in his flocks all these 20 years, right? But he says, I have divined. So he, he wasn't quite sure why that had happened, why all of those flocks had come and why the, the prosperity had come to his life. But he went to a soothsayer and, and he went to them and said, why have I been prospering? And the soothsayer, the diviner, told him, it's because of Jacob. You know, that's exactly what it was. So it, Laban was, was um, you know, he had to use divination to determine that, that God had blessed him because of Jacob. And the only reason he doesn't want him to leave is because he fears that that blessing will be taken away and he, Laban, is going to lose everything. Jacob and Laban were very much alike. They were trying to deceive each other and take advantage of each other, trying to get the best in every transaction. Jacob has been paid in his own coin by Laban. He can see in Laban the kind of man he would be without God's promise. Laban says to name your wages and I'll pay it. The labor negotiations have begun. Moving on. And now Jacob in verse 29. But he said to him, you yourself know I have served you and how your cattle have fared with me. For you had little before I came and it has increased a multitude. The Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. But now, when shall I provide for my own household? Also, he said, so he said, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you shall not give me anything. If you will do this one thing for me, I will again pasture and keep your flock. Let me pass through your entire flock today, removing from there every speckled and spotted sheep and every black one among the lambs, the spotted and speckled among the goats, and such shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come concerning my wages. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, will be considered stolen." You know, Jacob replies by recognizing that it's been God's blessing all along. God has been blessing him and allowing Laban to prosper. And, but now he needs to take care of his family. What shall I give you? As if it's a gift. I'm going to send you away with some parting gifts. You know, Laban is saying, I, I'll just give you a couple of things. And, and it's wages. He's worked for 20 years. The man deserves his hire. The man deserves something. And Jacob replies, 
Don't give me anything, but do this. You know, let me go through your flock and take the speckled, the spotted, and the black sheep from your flock. And then afterwards, when they see our flocks, my flocks will be the speckled, black, and spotted ones. Yours will be the white ones, the good ones. So everybody will know, this is mine, that's yours. And so they'll know that I'm a man of integrity because all I have are what you gave me, what I called out of that. Sounds like a good plan, doesn't it? It sounds like that way they can see right at a glance whose is whose. Let's see what Laban does. Okay, where am I? 34. Laban said, good, let it be according to your word. Right? That's Laban, right? Let's see what he does. So he removed on that day the striped and the spotted male goats and all the speckled and spotted female goats, every one with white in it and all the black ones among the sheep, and he gave them into the care of Jacob. Is that what it says? He gave them into the care of his sons, and he put a distance of three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flocks. So what does Laban do? He takes the speckled and the black and, and, and all those things and he gives them to his son and he says, go three days away. He cheated him, didn't he? He cheated Jacob. Jacob said, this is all I want. And he said, good. That's exactly what's going to happen. And he takes all those things and he puts them away three days away and he leaves Jacob with all the rest. And all the rest of them are what color? White. And, in, and Jacob comes out and looks at it. Where's my wages? Just, yeah, they're in there somewhere. There's got to be some speckled ones, right? But, but Jacob can't find any because they've all been taken away. I, I told you, Laban and Jacob are very similar. They're deceivers. And Laban just screwed him. Right? I mean, there's no other way for it. He, 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 he did it to him again. He'd already done it with him with the daughters, you know, and that's who Laban is. That's who he is. He's always looking out for himself. Wow. So what does Jacob do? Does he get down on his knees and thank God and, and content with his wages? Let's see what Jacob does. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees, peeled white stripes in them, exposing white which was in the rods. He set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the water troughs, where the flocks came to drink. And they mated when they came to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth speckled, striped, and spotted. Jacob separated the lambs, the male, and made the flocks face toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart, and he did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, when the stronger of the flock were mating, Jacob would place the rods in the side of the flock in the gutter so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. You know, Jacob said, okay, I'm going to go to the scientific method of the day. He got the farm journal, and in the farm journal it had this article about how to get speckled and spotted sheep. And it seems like you just take these branches, put them in the water troughs, and the offspring will come out speckled and spotted. At least that's what he thought was going to happen. So he, he does all this stuff, and then he takes and he, and he watches, and he only lets those strong ones uh, mate in front of those, those rods. He tries everything he can to increase his flocks. He does all of that. Instead of just waiting on God. The, the, the thing about this, though, is that God is so faithful. God still prospers him. 
God still gives him everything that he, he ha- has and even more. He does exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or even imagine. God wants to do that for us. Amen? That's, that's what God wants for us. You know, one of these days, they're going to, by those poor choices, they're going to have experience, and those experiences are going to lead to some good choices. We haven't seen them so far. Jacob and Leah and Rachel are still, you know, um, making poor choices. But we're going to see them in the future making some better choices. All right. Now, what I started to think about was what are the lessons that God wanted Jacob to learn from living with Laban? What are the lessons that that God had in mind in this whole thing? Because they didn't learn them. Not yet. Maybe a glimpse of them, maybe a little bit, but they, they, they haven't learned them all yet. And so uh, this is what we want to talk about. And I, I think I, I found four things. Now, there's probably more than that. And God may be speaking to you some other lessons that, that you've heard as, as I've been speaking. But these are the four things that I, that I think God is trying to uh, tell us in the midst of those. And if you would turn in your books to the book of Philippians, Philippians, because quite a few of them, I think, come out of that book, specifically uh, chapter two uh, for right now, verses three and four. The first thing that I believe God was trying to teach them is how to live in humility, how to live in humility. And this is, this is what Philippians two, three, and four says. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. If they had learned that lesson, what a difference that would have made in Jacob's dysfunctional family if they had been working with each other, if they had been living for each other. You know, sisters are supposed to be the best of friends, not rivals like Leah and Rachel. My own daughters have shown me that. I can remember when they were growing up, uh, Carrie and Kelly used to argue with each other, but when tough things happened, they always had each other's back. And now as they've grown up, they are their best friends. If anything happens, you know, uh, we go, Ke- Kelly will go to TT, and TT will come over and, and spend time with her and, and just, they can unload with each other, they can build one another up. They're their best friends because they think more about the other person now than they do about themselves. They're more interested in, in doing things for the other person. And that's what we're supposed to do. God wanted Leah and Rachel to look out for each other's best interests, not their own. And we need to be looking out for other people. You know, that whole that book about, by Bob Goff about loving everybody always. That's, that's the whole theory of, behind his book, that we need to love everybody always, no matter what, no matter what. And that's what thinking uh, this humility is about. Not looking out for our own personal interests, but looking out for the interests of love of others. Amen? The second thing is how to live with God's sovereignty. And this goes back to Romans 8, 28. And we all know that verse, you know, that God will work all things together for good to those who are called according to his promise. God's promise will come true in spite of our poor choices. There will be consequences of those poor choices, but his will is never thwarted. Judah was born. Joseph was born. Both were critical parts in God's plan. Levi was born. All the other brothers, they're gonna, there's going to be some consequences, and we're going to see that as we go on in Genesis and as you go on in the, in the Bible. There are consequences of the wrong choices that Leah and Rachel made. And we'll see more of those. Um, One of the things that uh, we learned when we were going through seminary was that God is in control. 
He knows best, and we just need to trust him. You know, I, I, I left a good-paying job with the school district in 29 Palms, and I went as a missionary to seminary. I had to raise my own support to get through school. I had to pay my bill every quarter. Every time you couldn't register for the next quarter until that bill was paid. And, and so we learned in the, you know, it was a two-year program, and we did it in four, and uh, because God was showing us that we could trust him, that we could um, um, trust him to meet our needs, even though it didn't look like it could happen. I looked at the budget every month, and it, it didn't make sense, but God, God got us through that. God is in control. He knows best. We just need to trust him. And we got through all four of those years. Everything was paid. We were debt free. And, and we, we went into a church in Mariloma and, and pastored there for uh, nine years and, and had a wonderful time because of God's faithfulness. God took us through that. And we need to learn that God is sovereign. He's in control of your life. Even when circumstances don't look like they add up, God adds up. He'll make up the difference. He will do it. Amen? God is in control. And then uh, the, the next thing, uh, back in Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 11, it says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am, I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Jacob came to Laban with nothing and God blessed him with everything. God gave him everything. And he needed to learn to be content in the lack and in the abundance. And that's why God is allowing those things to happen. We need to learn the same thing, that we need to be content no matter what the circumstance. We need to learn those lessons. Amen? And then finally, how to live with hope. Philippians 3, 12 through 14. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching toward, forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Pressing on. There's a song that's been going through my head these past few weeks as I prepared. Jacob has been given a vision of God at the lowest time of his life. He had nothing and he had to work for everything. Every day was a struggle. He seemed to be at war with Laban and his own family. But I think that the memory of that encounter with God at Bethel gave him hope for finishing well. Pressing on towards the prize. Most of the time he made poor choices, but he continued to press on toward the prize worth fighting for. We too have been given great and precious promises. And God, uh, by God, and, and we also make poor choices along the way. But we can have hope that God will bring us through to our everlasting Lord. I'd like to uh, end by having you listen to this song by Jamie Kimmett, a prize worth fighting for. Lately, been down so low. My faith seems to come and go. Some days, Father, I don't know. How did my love grow cold? But you help me see again. This world is not the end. Sweetest friend, your 
Fighting for